Welcome so much to tonight's lecture. It's one of the last lectures of this lecture series. And as you can tell, my name is not Dave Waits. Um, Dave could not be here tonight, so I'm going to do the introduction instead. My name is Pia Sorensen, and I am the preceptor of the Science in Cooking course. And I'm going to talk to you for a few minutes uh, about what we're doing in the course before I introduce our big speaker for tonight. So first, I'd like to... Am I on? No. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Jose Andres Think Food Group and the Alicia Foundation for a lot of generous support, uh, Montferrand and the Whole Foods River Street team who are supplying the food for our labs. And I'm going to show you later on one of our labs, which was making molten chocolate cake. And as you can imagine, if a whole class that is as big as this lecture hall is making molten chocolate cake, you need a lot of eggs. And we're very grateful for all these and all the other things that Whole Foods has very generously been donating and delivering to our lab. <clears throat> I'd also like to thank uh, Fusion Chef and Catalania Keisha. Uh, Food and Wine and Lexis are our new sponsors, and we are very thankful for their support. And I'd also like to remind you, there we go, that the very last lecture of this series is happening not next Monday, but next Sunday um, in one of the neighboring lecture halls. And it's a free event, but you do need to get tickets for it. And you get those at the Harvard box office, and that happens, it opens up at noon tomorrow, and the tickets are free. Um, so, we started out this semester a long time ago, back in September, and we were talking about faces and face transitions, and in particular, we focused on water, because water is especially interesting when it comes to thinking about food. Um, partly because, of, of course, we boil food in water and do things like that, but also because water is one of the major components of most foods, and so by understanding water, we can understand a lot about foods. Um, so we talked about the different states, the solid, the liquid, and the gas, and we talked about the phase transitions and what happens on a molecular level as water goes through these phase transitions. And then we moved on to talking about more complex phase transitions that can be thought of phase transitions, and we studied how milk becomes a solid when you lower the pH, and it becomes curds and we, and we used the curds to make cheese. And we made cheese in lab, and we studied a lot of the different properties of cheese, the mouthfeel and the elasticity and the viscosity as it melts. And <clears throat> then we moved on to a lot more complicated cooking. And we talked about spherification, which is a technique that was introduced and pioneered by Ferran Idria where you use the diffusion of ions to make uh, a gelation happen. So the calcium ions sort of move in and, and cause the polymers to form a network that is the shell of the spheres. So then we got toward the end of the course, and we uh, were sort of ready for dessert. And this is an example of one of our labs where we made the molten chocolate cake, and we studied the um, measurement of the baking process as the temperature moved in at different distances from the edge of the cake. And um, we introduced an equation 
um, which described the cooking process and how long it takes to cook a cake. And you can calculate this based on the diffusion constant and the size of the cake and your target temperature and your initial temperature. And um, last week, if some of you were here, we also used this equation to calculate the cooking time of a turkey. And um, I don't know if any of you actually used this equation to calculate the cooking time. <laughs> I did not either. <laughs> so, um, after turkey, it's time for pumpkin pie and pecan pie. And we have one of the true masters of not only pies, but all kinds of desserts here with us tonight. He gets to cook the, the pie for the Obamas. And so please join me in welcoming Bill Yossi's, the White House pastry chef. Thanks very much. Um, a year ago, I was privileged to uh, come here and do the first year of this, uh, of this course. And um, it was a very exciting experience. I, I certainly learned as much as I taught. And uh, I'm happy to, uh, to be joined this year by my good friend, Nazat Kanash, who is, uh, I'll let her introduce herself, but we met at Obuli. She's one of the sort of disciples of modern cuisine and uh, the uh, sort of oracle of all things new when it comes to avant-garde cooking. Uh, she was working in the uh, pastry department at Obuli when I met her, and uh, she then <coughs> progress from there uh, into all the other departments of El Bulli, which is a, a singularly difficult and challenging thing to do uh, for anyone who is, uh, has been in a three-star kitchen. Uh, it's grueling, and uh, it was, uh, I had not been in one for about uh, 20 years since I was last working in France. So it was a, a very uh, strong reminder of, um, of just how hard it is, but uh, Najat persevered, and not only persevered, but thrived and succeeded. So um, we're preparing a few things uh, now to, because um, no lecture about modernist cuisine would be uh, really worth its salt without some smoke and mirrors. So um, I'll let Najat introduce herself a little bit and, and why she loves this uh, experience, and also about what the heck she's doing here on the table. It's very simple. It's a little bit of white chocolate with praline and nuts. I'm doing it now, so later on it's soft, and we can all have a little piece of sweetness of Mr. Bill. Here is just brown chocolate. It looks ugly, but I like that. I don't want things to look perfect. I like things that look natural. So I was very lucky to meet him at El Bulli. I didn't know who he was, to be honest. So I think I kicked his ass somehow. Oh, yes. <laughs> I needed it. <laughs> and I'm very lucky to be here, so I hope you enjoy every single thing we show you. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, yeah, it was a, um, a great experience, and it, it has certainly changed the way not only people think about food, um, that restaurant. Uh, as you probably know that you travel along a very long, dangerous road uh, over cliffs and, and uh, with traffic coming uh, at you to get there, and that's part of the experience, is the difficulty of getting to El Bulli and to have this amazing, um, magical experience, which uh, is the 24 or 36-course meal there. Well, the last month was 60. 60, 
for those last lucky few that got into uh, the restaurant. I was but, one. And you were, she was one, maybe the first one, yeah. The first one of the cooks to graduate to become a customer. Um, so, and I was as well, and that was uh, a memorable, unforgettable experience. Um, but not because of the smoke and mirrors and not because of the long trip down a dangerous road. Um, what is truly uh, unique, I think, about El Bulli, or maybe not unique, but which is special, is that in spite of how, how original and creative the cuisine is, it still sticks to some of the most basic culinary inviolable principles that any chef holds to, and that is that taste is foremost. And um, all great chefs base, whether they're doing molecular gastronomy, whether they're doing traditional cuisine or cooking fish or meat, um, taste is what is our barometer. Taste is the standard that we will always go back to. Um, we can use many wonderful uh, sort of techniques and new techniques come out every day, but um, for great chefs, it has to taste good. And that's one thing that uh, we found at El Bulli is that everything was delicious. No matter how provocative, and many of it is, many of the, the courses are quite provocative, no matter how provocative, strange, weird it was, it always tastes delicious. And it also also had a balance throughout the meal where you go from one, one particular uh, taste sensation and texture, something you don't even recognize as food, always delicious and always in the correct sort of um, hierarchy of flavors as you move along through the meal. So um, that brings me to that subject of taste. And uh, it is, uh, as I say, what, something that is, is very um, visceral for chefs. They, they, they have to reach that, that uh, ability to create great flavors. And uh, it's something that has been um, studied from a scientific point of view in ever more intense detail. Lately, uh, this was just in September of this year, Charles Zucker of uh, Columbia University published a uh, paper in Science Magazine in which he, uh, he um, showed optical imagery of the actual experience of taste in the mammalian brain. In this case, it was mice, but presumably they taste. Um, you certainly like you know, their cheese and white chocolate, I know that. Um, but that optical imaging uh, recorded the neural activity and what he found was discrete clusters of neurons which respond to the different taste centers. So when we talk about taste centers, we all growing up learned about um, bitter, sweet, salty, uh, umami, sour. And uh, he was able to demonstrate exactly in this uh, poor little mice's brain where this was uh, taking place. And uh, before it had always been assumed that there was kind of a just a, a generic area in the brain that, that uh, registered taste. But he shows exactly uh, cell for cell where it occurs. So there's, he's not the first person to uh, study and investigate taste. Um, certainly chefs and writers have for, uh, for many years. And especially it's um, part of taste, it's collateral, collateral sense, which is the sense of smell, olfaction. And, um, if you're familiar with Marcel Proust, you certainly remember in the uh, La Recherche du Temps Perdu that um, Swan tastes this um, madeleine. And, um, and in that madeleine, a lot of memories return. We now understand that scientifically, what, what was going on, because uh, um, 
Linda Buck, in her, her studies about uh, olfaction, discovered that uh, there are very specific uh, receptors for, uh, for different smells. In fact, there are so many receptors that it takes up 3% of the human genome. That's enormous. Uh, it is a, an enormous part of who we are, of our hardwiring, is, is devoted to smell. And smell, insofar as it, um, it, it relates to the palate, also indicates what taste is, is all about. So that study by Linda Buck won the Nobel Prize, and it has launched a lot of these studies throughout, um, in, in all corners of science, about what is taste, what is smell, and what a big part of, of who we are that those, uh, those senses uh, play on. Um, there are um, olfactory systems in the very oldest of, of beings, whether they sh be sharks or, or uh, scorpions. We're talking about 250 million years ago. Uh, these are all creatures which, which have the ability to smell. And in this case of the sharks, they actually, uh, their smell can be, it permeates through their skin. So they're able to actually smell and taste their food before they eat it. And I always like to say, just like food critics. <laughs> but but uh, talking about taste, there were some very interesting um, ideas thrown around about taste. And uh, Heston Blumenthal, who's the chef at the Fat Duck and also one of the kind of proponents of modern uh, cooking, um, worked together with IFF, the International Fragrances and Flavors and Fragrance, um, which is an, uh, an organization which develops new flavors and new perfume. Um, they use uh, a, grass, a gas uh, chronograph to, to break down flavors into their component parts, and then they can, they can reconstitute those flavors. Well, what they asked Heston to do was to come up with that connection that Marcel Proust talked about between flavors and the past, flavors and emotions, flavors and a sense of place. And so he did that, and uh, he went a little wild with it. And I want to share it with you. And so in this book, which was published by Visionaire magazine, um, Heston Blumenthal developed, he took a, a number of emotions and tried to, as a chef, create a flavor to match that emotion. Or not only emotion, I should say state of mind. And um, then it was turned into these little uh, strips like uh, you get in Listerine packets, these little dry strips that melt in your mouth. And so each of these flavors is different. And what I want to do is pass this around. And please take just one of them. I think there's just about enough for everybody. And you have your choice of quite a few different um, flavors. So um, we'll pass it around. They're in these little booklets here. Let me see if I can get one open. And they're, they're quite unique. Um, for example, this one is exotic. OK. <laughs> this flavor was developed by Nobu, the famous Japanese sushi chef. So um, I'll, let, I'll let, as you pass them around, you open them, because it's going to take me too long. This looks like that Andy Rooney thing where you can't get anything open. huh? But if you have uh, some, anybody have a nail clippers or perhaps those knitting needles will come in handy. If <laughs> I'll let you guys open them. But uh, so we have an hour for it to go around. Uh, just to give you some of the, um, just to give you some of your choices. But um, you know, don't pick the first one because after exotic you have adrenaline. <laughs> we might need some of that at the end of this uh, science lecture. 
Uh, luxury. What does luxury taste like? Okay. Um, feast. What does feast taste like? We're about to find out, or you're about to find out if there's any left. Okay. This one is by Yoko Ono. Mommy. What does mommy taste like? I suppose you have to be kind of a cannibal, but enjoy that. <laughs> okay. By, by Thomas, Thomas Deman, uh, art. What does art taste like? Um, and then finally, there's uh, my favorite one. And well, this, I'm sure this is going to be the one that disappears uh, the quickest. It was developed by uh, a very famous uh, flavorist and perfumist, um, Christophe Lodemiel, uh, with whom I have done several lectures uh, in the past at NYU about olfaction. And uh, this one is multiple orgasm. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to hide that one in there. <laughs> so, please pass it around. Uh, you have to kind of dig them over there. They're sort of they're vacuum packed. So, you open up the, um, and inside there are these little um, Listerine type tabs. So, just pull one off and make yourself happy. <laughs> so, meanwhile, while you're doing that, we're going to be talking about. Um, this lecture, which we've entitled Lip Smacking Science, Christians, Christians, um, Crystals, Emulsions, and Foams. No, every religion is welcome here. Um, so I, I'd like to begin this lecture by saying that um, one of the things, the great things that happened to me in coming here uh, last year and thinking about it this whole year was that um, we witnessed many beautiful phenomena uh, in the universe, and um, there are many ways to interpret it and, and uh, sort of contact it. But I think science is one of the most interesting because it takes those questions and it takes beauty and with a very hard look tries to explain what that beauty is and how it functions. So uh, for me, this photograph is of a dessert that uh, I find very beautiful. It has uh, colors, it has flavors, it has sheen all the things that I'd like to see in dessert, textures. It's of a, um, a red plum, a red plum opera, actually. The cake on the left-hand side is an opera cake, which is a classic French dessert, layers of almond biscuit, and then uh, what we call crystallized lemon uh, cream. Those are, that's basically candied lemons. And in the bottom is a layer of a, um, of a plum that I found in the farmer's market in New York which is called um, the Lacrimi de Christi, Tears of Christ. Um, but it was uh, very deep, deep red and um, such a beautiful flavor, and uh, it made for a great dessert. So how do we go about explaining uh, this kind of beautiful phenomena? Well, physics helps us, science helps us, because one of the subjects that science deals with is soft matter. and. Um, Dessert has, is all kinds of soft matter. Soft matter, when you, when you chew it, it, it breaks if it's crunchy, it oozes if it's smooth, it, it can be unctuous, it can be gooey, it can be sticky. So all of those textures uh, we're going to experience tonight. <coughs> and we're going to try to understand <coughs> why they do what they do uh, through the science behind it. And uh, as PSO um, uh, expertly explained, uh, what, is, what is going on are these uh, 
self-organizing structures, let's call them. They are structures which are larger than, uh, than molecules, but smaller than what we can see with the naked eye. So uh, whether they are um, the, um, the, that intricate lattice work of spherification, which is uh, polymers which develop and cross-link through the sodium to make a, a delicate outer shell that we'll see when we get to spherification, or whether it's a foam which is introducing air into a liquid and uh, finding a way to make that stable. All those things are part of what, of what chefs do. Um, so one of the, the things that we, uh, one way to look at it is what I like to call the prism of flavor. Because as we said before, great chefs are mostly concerned with flavor, but they, they see the experience as kind of a progression in a meal. So that prism is how we experience our time at their table. So Najat and I uh, put this, uh, this little show together. And this whole subject goes back to the very first chefs, which this image is what um, recalls to me the very first cooking. It's just an ember of charcoal. So whether it was primitive Neanderthal cooking on an open charcoal, this, is, uh, this to me is scientific cooking. This to me is avant-garde cuisine. Because the first person who put organic material onto a hot coal to cook it and char it was ahead of the game. But one thing, many people have considered that uh, cooking actually helped the human race to develop because it enabled us to live longer. After all, cooking destroys harmful bacteria. So the fact of burning something and cooking it, it, it enables us not only to eat a wider range of foods, which helped our brain to develop, but it also killed a lot of bacteria that would have killed us if we hadn't cooked it. So avant-garde cooking goes back to this very first day. So here's, uh, here's, here's a very beautiful photograph of a piece of popcorn which is about to be exploded. So even that is, is a kind of an avant-garde cooking. What we're going to talk about are um, three major subjects that uh, physics deals with, emulsions, foams, and gels. And the um, emulsions will be the first thing that we talk about. It is an, an emulsion is a dispersion of one liquid in another. Typically, it's a fat inside a, um, inside a, a more uh, liquid substance. For some mayonnaise, for example, is egg yolk that's dispersed into oil, or a chocolate ganache, which is the, um, the fat of, of cocoa butter, which is dispersed throughout cream. Uh, so I'd like to, um, to show you an example of that and how science has, has interacted with cooking and with uh, chefs to develop new ways to cook and new ways to taste. Um, one of the very interesting things that we're going to talk about too when we get to uh, the portion here with, uh, that Najat is preparing is uh, protein. Proteins and lecithin, both of which occur in eggs and which are extracted in, um, into a very pure form and which is used in the kind of cooking that we're going to be talking about. Um, before I get into that, I wanted to just back up for a moment and tell you about, um, we said that these things occur on a, on a very small scale. Um, it's what would be called the, um, it's higher than an atom, but, but smaller than, than actual structure. So this is called the mesoscopic scale, okay? The mesoscopic scale could be defined as um, 
could be could be measured in nanometers. So a nanometer would be what you're seeing there about the diameter of a human hair. So that's point four zero seven five of a meter. Very, very small. Here's a picture of an emulsion. And uh, as you can see, there are different sort of colored uh, balls there, equally distributed. And um, what we can show here is a way that modern cooking has used the um, science of use the science of emulsions or the science behind cooking. This is a chocolate mousse with no eggs and no cream. <coughs> Excuse me. So when we normally as a chef when we make a chocolate mousse, we are um, we're whisking the whipped cream and introducing air. Then we're cooking the egg yolks, we're mixing with chocolate, folding that in, and then finally we're, we're mixing the egg whites into a meringue, which is a type of foam, the kind of foam that we'll be talking about in a moment. And um, with that air, we introduce, uh, we introduce it into the chocolate. As the chocolate chills or crystallizes, because obviously chocolate gets colder and stiffer as it gets, uh, it gets stiffer as it gets colder, um, you form this, this emulsion. But we can also do that without adding any eggs or dairy by helping the emulsion to happen with another protein, in this case, gelatin. So if we take gelatin and we um, mix it with just water, we can pour that over chocolate and then mix it with our burr mixer or immersion blender, which is around here somewhere. Thank you. So as we, in modern cooking, the immersion blender is the sine qua non. You really can hardly make any recipe without this. For one reason, because many of these hydrocolloids um, resist being dissolved in liquid. So you, ha you need the action of these cutting blades to really um, get the hydrocolloid into the liquid or the water. So here's an example that we, we went through and we came up with a very, very smooth chocolate mousse which has no, no milk or cream and yet it's very creamy. So you can see a beautiful chocolate mousse made out of water, water and chocolate, which as for pastry chefs, that's kind of... Uh, blasphemous because the first thing they tell you in chocolate school is don't let any water get into your chocolate. Um, thank you. So um, yeah, that's true. You can't get one drop into a bowl of pure chocolate or it will begin to uh, crystallize because the, the water is disturbing that emulsion. But if you add the right amount and a little bit of protein, you can, uh, you can make a beautiful chocolate mousse with just water and chocolate. Thanks to our emulsion up there. <coughs> so emulsions could be a suspension of oil in water or oil in any liquid, really. Foams are another one of the subjects of um, physics today that is a very exciting area. It's exciting for physicists and for uh, chefs. And this is one where we're going to uh, move into Naja's territory because we have, a, um, we have something made with a foam. Now, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, is this the gin fizz, Naza? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, tell us about the gin fizz. It's just lime. Perfect. Lime, gin, Bombay sake. Very important. Or sake. Ferran loves it. Yes. Or sake. <laughs> okay, uh, we're lime, on the right gin. Some simple syrup and lemon juice. Very simple. 
So what I do is I put it in an ugly bottle, like you see, but it's very handy for me, uh, normally for maybe 60 people. And I'm able to freeze it during the whole night, which okay. there is alcohol on it. It will look like glass. It's not completely frozen. I will add the foam that you will see now. This looks ugly, but actually it's delicious. I wish I could give you all one. And uh, it's, it's significant where this uh, sort of um, course is served, right? Not just how do you serve this course Just at in the beginning. The beginning of the meal? Yes, sir. So what? So go ahead. This is Puma. From Bombay Safi. So that's just gin from the blue bottle. Very simple. <laughs> we all know that bottle. <laughs> <coughs> We don't serve it like this, okay? That's a nice portion. So, again, gin, lemon juice, and egg white. We cook it in the bottle, like an Aube Marie or runner, and that's it. Very simple. So egg there's two temperatures cooked. there, actually. Yes. This is mm -hmm. warm. We have cold, frozen, glass, lime, alcohol, fresh. I think it's delicious. I mean, I could... Sounds have good. Five of those. Tease us a little more, why don't Very you? Very simple. Um, the the kind of uh, amazing thing is that you you're never when you go to Albuli, you you weren't really quite sure when your meal had begun and when your just the greeting was uh, was going on because you sit in this beautiful courtyard on the, this cliff and uh, they start to bring you uh, what they refer to as uh, aperitivos and some of them are edible. There one is a uh, kind of a a bread, this meringue bread that is made, that is the, is that the mojito? Oh yeah. That bread, the white but bread. It's a meringue <coughs> made by apple water. Ah. So we take the, up, we separate the juice of the water, it stays uh, form up, water down, I can't show it, it's very, very difficult. But then we extract that water and then we use it for a meringue. There's a composition that we are able to create a meringue from it. So we're able to make any kind of meringue with dehydrator, which I have here, a dehydrator, but I don't have a meringue, sorry. It's, uh, it's an amazing texture, and it's, if you look at it, it really looks like the Spanish uh, little breads, yes. those little... Uh, bocadillos. Yeah, what do you call it? Bocadillos, yes. yeah. Like a little white bocadillos, you'd swear it was bread, then you bite into it and you think it's meringue, and finally it tastes like apple. Yes. So that's the kind of uh, experience. We, we turn it for two times 40 minutes in the, how do you call that? Kitchener, very good. It's a very hard process to be able to create a meringue, but it's different. Without egg, we're able to create a meringue. That's right. And um, the physics connection with that is, uh, is a very important one because what's being created by turning it in the KitchenAid is a foam. So traditionally, pastry chefs such as myself were very, very attentive to how meringues were made. So your egg whites have to be impeccably clean, meaning there can be no yolk in them. Uh, the bowl has to be clean. There can't be any grease on the bowl. Otherwise, the, uh, the meringue will not build. Uh, if you've made, I'm sure many of you have made meringues, you know that there's nothing more frustrating than let, seeing the whites whip around in the bowl and they're not going anywhere. Well, if the bowl's dirty, uh, that's what happens. If there's too much yolk in the whites, that's also what happens. The meringue just uh, will not develop. Um, some other tricks are room temperature whites develop more quickly and make a more stable foam. 
um, the, uh, a little, adding a little bit of acid, either lemon juice or cream of tartar, helps those uh, air bubbles to form a smaller and smaller uh, radius, so um, the foam becomes more dense and more uh, difficult to disperse. But all of those, um, all of those ways of uh, developing a meringue have been uh, sort of recreated in modernist cuisine. One of the ways is the one that uh, Nazat just told us about with the, um, this apple water bread. <coughs> um, so, um, but what is, what is the physiology there? What is, what is happening? Um, well, we can, look at, um, we can look at foam as a, um, as a kind of, a, again, a self-organizing structure. What happens as the, as the liquid forms around the air that's introduced with the whisk, the, um, the liquid has a tendency to want to uh, go back into its liquid state, and it doesn't want to uh, encase air. Why should it? Most liquids or water is happy around other molecules. Why should it, why should it form a bubble? Why should any bubble be formed? But in fact, there is, um, there's a number of things which not only allow it to form, but to stay that way. And uh, lecithin is one of them. So we often add um, uh, modified soy lecithin <coughs> or modified soy protein to liquids and whisk them up for a long time. And they keep their shape because normally the liquid would want to drain out and the bubble would pop and all the liquid would go back to being just a liquid. So, but for a chef, that's, uh, that's problematic. So we like the foam to stay longer, not only so that we can get it to the table, but that so that we can make it uh, a more and more, um, how can I say, more and more luscious, really. Because the smaller the bubbles, the more your tongue appreciates that texture. By adding this uh, modified soy protein into the liquid, um, we, can, we can maintain a foam. And in fact, what we're doing is we're turning a liquid into a solid. <coughs> so here's an example of a uh, blackberry juice, which was merely a juice. And it was whisked with a little, just a touch of modified soy protein, the kind of thing you find in a health food store. And uh, it's maintained a foam. This was, uh, I whisked this in the White House at about 8 o'clock this morning. And uh, so we've actually, and it still maintains uh, a structure. So it's gone from uh, a liquid into a solid merely by adding this air. So, and the bubbles are still, have still maintained themselves. So afterwards, and nothing else is in here, so we have some spoons after the lecture if you want to taste the blackberry foam. There's a little bit of sugar in it. But it's the type of thing which um, we, as chefs, like to use on a plate because we can, we can obtain very different textures and kind of the surprise element. So as we go along, Nazat and I will be, um, we'll sort of put some of these, what, we've, what we're making, on the plate. And we can, oh, perfect. Yeah. So we'll create uh, our own dessert plate as we go along. But as you know, in some place like El Bulli, dessert and savory hardly have meaning anymore. Do you th would you agree with that? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm very honest. To be honest, what do you think about dessert and savory courses? 
That's we it. should mix them. I'm originally from Morocco, and we do, well, are born in San Sebastian, very proud. But uh, Morocco, we use a lot of salt and sweet. So it's very nice that with a little bully, you know, we start like this, sweet, salted, mm -hmm. sweet. Mm -hmm. I was I uh, I saw an interview with Ferran Adria once in which uh, an American had uh, eaten at his restaurant and and he said well I don't like this mixing of salt and sweet and Ferran said this from the a man from the country where hamburger and a coke is the standard meal <laughs> <laughs> so um, we're not uh, we're not the only ones that like um, sweet and salty together so. So uh, here we have a foam that behaves, behaves as uh, a solid. And what, is, what has happened is that there, was an, there is an energy from that whisk that was used to create this, um, that was used to create that foam. And what has happened is there's a certain amount of energy still in there. And that energy is the, is the um, pressure in each of those bubbles. So the larger the bubble, uh, the lower the pressure. As you get smaller and smaller bubbles, the, the pressure is pushing out on the bubble and the membrane of liquid is on the outside. So there's a tendency for that liquid to drain away and to go back into a liquid. But the, the, pro the, um, the lecithin <coughs> is what enables that foam to stay there. And I promise you it'll be there at the end of the lecture. Um, okay. Foams. It's something that in modern cuisine uh, is referred to as air. Um, so you often hear uh, someone talk about uh, blackberry air. Um, this, is, um, this is something that in the class tomorrow we're going we're gonna to use, we're going to display with a formula. But um, I'll put it on the board just for, just for heck's sake. <coughs> So this, this formula describes the interface between the air and the liquid. So that is the surface. So the radius of the, of the bubble, and this, this being the surface energy. This is the surface energy density. And this is the interfacial area. So this kind of, of uh, course can help us to really understand what's happening on our plate. As a chef, that's very exciting. Okay, you're taking the, you've taken a liquid out of its bulk phase and moved it into quite a different shape. This, this leads us to the, the, next, uh, the next sort of um, element or next recipe that we want to go to, which is gels. And when we're talking about modernist cuisine, gels uh, are most, most often used in spherification. So there we have um, a process in which the uh, polymers are interlinked. A sodium alginate is added to whatever liquid that you're going to use. In this case, we started with an olive puree. 
uh, green olive puree, which is very strong in flavor. And um, so then when that is dipped into a calcium chloride bath, that, uh, that salt makes the, the interlocking um, polymers come together and it forms the sphere. So you have this thin membrane on the outside and a liquid on the inside. And it's probably the most um, telling of the modernist cuisine uh, recipes. And I think we actually are going to be able to share that with you. Let's, let's do that, yeah. We, we, before we leave airs and, uh, and bubbles, let's, uh, let's do this one. That's right. Sorry. This, that's okay. Um, I'm noticing the very interesting color. Would you care to tell us about the color? It was just oil. It's just Moroccan spices. Pink, somehow. <laughs> Found out somewhere. <laughs> I wanted to do something different. <laughs> I love pink. It's really surprising. Um, just an oil. An oil. And it, what it's creating a lot of bubbles. Yes, That's because they're, not, they're not perfect yet, but mm -hmm. Air is, well, we make air. I make mm -hmm. air with lecithin from soya. And this an infusion is milk, cream, all kind of flavors. I use like five different uh, spices. And I infuse it. I let it cool down one day. I add lecithin this morning. I shake it during the day. I freeze some of it. And now I'm just going to mix a little bit to show you. Can we have? Yes, we do. Oh, yes. Can you, can you, are you able to come closer with the camera to see these bubbles? Because they're, it's very interesting. So these bubbles are not perfect. By shaking them in the same, by just moving them in the same corner, I will be able to get small bubbles. So all the molecules will come together. And we'll have that, you know, that form you like, the air you like? Love it. Yes. Let me do 20 seconds and then I stop. So there's about 0.6% uh, uh, by weight of lecithin, very little amount, um, but it enables those, that foam to develop and to maintain itself um, just as it did with the, uh, the foam in the other kind of whipping. So, sorry, it looks messy. Hmm. Yes, let me take this. Let me have, yes, no, okay, this one, there is some frozen we did this morning, it tastes very crunchy, and then, yes, so air, you take it for both. Once you shake it, you have to let it for a couple of two, three minutes. There are big bubbles here. 
my ex-chef will say, no valid, but to show you it's okay. So, ah. so that's the air. It looks like a muffin. You can, f <laughs> actually you can freeze it, and it's very crunchy, full of flavor. We froze it and, uh, yeah. and served it last time. It, was, uh, it makes a, a really wonderful sensation. So let's put it here. Yeah. It's okay, it's just water. Nothing just happens. Water. Oh, it rains every day. In we never know what's in these uh, containers. So, you know. <coughs> that's Bill <coughs> Muffin. My favorite, yes. Uh -huh. So um, there again, you have, you have a little bit of a different uh, kind of foam. Uh, not quite as dense, but uh, where the lecithin is, is able to, um, to maintain that, uh, that shape. And lecithin is something that is, uh, here we have um, uh, a sample of it with this Moroccan spices. And actually at this university, uh, last year when I was here, we, we learned of a very unique real world application for these foams. And uh, as I said, a pastry chef, as a pastry chef, I've been making meringues my whole life, but I saw the most beautiful meringue ever uh, here in a laboratory that was created by Cindy Tang, uh, a PhD uh, student here. And um, this is a picture of it. <coughs> this is uh, a meringue that is created by, um, excuse me, by forcing, uh, egg white through that, through that very tiny um, opening, and into it is injected uh, nitrogen, nitrogen, air nitrogen, so that the, um, the bubbles are formed, and this little machine can make up to uh, a billion bubbles in 20 minutes. So what's the real world application? Well, she has developed a way, let's see, uh, no, um, farther down on this test tube to introduce a pathogen into that cell, and then to introduce uh, whatever drug or medicine she's testing. So instead of having just uh, a thousand petri dishes or a hundred petri dishes to test your uh, drug or medicine, here you can have uh, a control group of a billion. So your results are much more reliable when you have something like this, where each of those cells has an independent sort of test for, for whatever you're uh, looking for. That's an amazing meringue and an amazing use for meringue. Uh, this, this is a little um, uh, drawing here of, of where uh, lecithin comes from and, and where it occurs in the body. Uh, so you can see that these, um, it's a membrane. So the, on the cellular level, the, the top picture shows you that. And then where it, uh, where it sort of um, occurs in the, uh, in the epidermis. Here's another, um, another example of lecithin and protein, the way it occurs in the human body. So these are, uh, are very tiny cells, and they are, um, but they link together to form um, to very, very strong ligaments and muscles. <coughs> the, um, the curious thing about these proteins is that they can become, they have a tendency to curl up, Okay, with um, the hydrophilic, the, the water-loving uh, side is facing outside and the hydrophobic inside. But when you denature them by adding either air or by adding the um, soy protein, you're able to uh, sort of open those chains, and that's why we are able to obtain these very different kind of reactions. Um, 
this next, this next photograph shows you the protein as it actually appears in an electron microscope. On the right, you see that, I don't know if you can see it from where you are. We expanded it quite a bit. Sort of a lattice work. <coughs> and uh, so it's known as a, a protein scaffold. And uh, it forms a very regular shape. So with that, I was going to uh, show you how that um, serves a pastry chef. One of the things that we do is uh, we kind of play with proteins and gluten. Gluten is one of our favorite proteins. Um, it is, um, I'm not going to show you because I don't think, I did I bring that bowl with the, um, well, I'll explain it to you. <laughs> uh, I think I, I don't think I, I think I left it in the lab. The, um, um, it is a, it's a ball of dough that is in the refrigerator. Okay. Yeah. If, but I'll explain it while we're on it, and I'll show you later when, it, when we get it. It's, um, so with this ball of dough, which is no bigger than this, like a softball, um, the gluten is worked in that, the gluten being one of the proteins in flour. And by worked, I mean we leave it in the machine and let it turn for a long time to make a strudel dough. With that, with that single softball size of dough, you can stretch it out, and I could easily cover this table with that single piece of dough. And that's because of this protein scaffold that is, being, that is shown there on the, uh, the right-hand side. <coughs> so that's, this is the recipe for the chocolate mousse that we, uh, that we saw. And um, do we have any more foams to talk about, or can we talk about gels? We can talk about gels. Okay, the sodium alginate is the ingredient, as I mentioned before, that we put into the liquid, be it mozzarella liquid or olive, uh, an olive liquid, and, um, or it could be a fruit puree. Uh, people often use mango uh, puree to mix the sodium alginate in. And then when it's dipped into a calcium chloride, which is a salt, the crosslink is formed, and this crosslinking reaction forms a solid shell. It's sometimes known as caviar. So that is what Najat is about to demonstrate. If, you can, if we can bring the camera in closer, we'll get a good example of, of how, this, uh, how this look as, it, as it's coming together. Just want to start sharing the olives. So you'll be, you'll be tasting it in, this, uh, in these individual cups. So if we, we'll walk around up the, the aisles there and give you the tray, and if you can pass that down to your neighbors. It's quite a surprising experience. So as you can see, um, the sodium alginate uh, is already in the liquid. And it, it sets up pretty quickly, at least in the initial phase. So you have this sphere being formed there, uh, this kind of little uh, eyeball shape of um, olive. And as she pours it in there gently so it stays together, and then pushes it under, so the so the calcium chloride completely in, encapsulates it. You have I made these. like millions of them. Yeah, I can, this is not your first time. I'm sure at El Bulli, if you are, you're working in the kitchen. Spherification is no longer a mystery. So now you're getting one. It's very simple. It's just the juice of an olive. But don't but put the whole thing in your mouth. Don't bite into it because you'll have olive juice down your shirt if you do. Let's see. Basically, what I want to do is cook, create a layer around it, 
and keep the whole juice inside. So simple. So once you get it in your mouth, it explodes. The fun part about it is it's just olive juice. There's nothing else. Okay, I add some xanthan and a little bit of calcium, and that's it. Very simple. So I put it in water just to wash. I get a clean olive. I don't know if the camera can get it. Yeah? Would you like to try? <laughs> you had one. Um, the thing Dry about the we put it in water is because the calcium chloride, although it's harmless, is extremely bitter. And we keep it <coughs> spices, lemon, orange, rosemary. So it Just absorbs like those, lemon. like an infusion, yeah. Yes. They do, they do, they absorb, they absorb into it. It has to be done every day because yes. uh, it will continue to coagulate as time goes on. So this sphere will become kind of a rubbery ball and you'll lose that effect of, uh, of the explosion of flavor in your mouth. So this is the, one of the first things we serve for bully, honestly. You mean in the, like the history of the restaurant? This was one of the first things to become popular. And also one of the first things in the menu. In the menu, uh-huh. So, that's the olive. We have egg yolk. Cook it 53 degrees. So it's ready to, to have let me show you. So this is another type of liquid which can be treated in this manner. It's like so it's a egg yolk. Lidded explosion. As you see. And you said you cooked it to what temperature? Fifty-three. Fifty-three degrees. So it's not fully coagulated. But not like cooking, cooking. I have uh, water under. Oh, here, so I'll I'll get over my like have that. <coughs> then I have. Yeah, you like that? Beautiful. I'm a gypsy. I mean, <laughs> sorry, Bill. I know you come from the White House. <laughs> no, we Some love, we love gypsies. Do you vote? <laughs> <laughs> um, so fantastic. This, this the, um, so this is a, an egg yolk version of spherification. And then we also do the little mozzarella with this funky cherry tomato, which is really cherry tomato. Which is really a cherry tomato. It's <laughs> <laughs> nice, I like that. I was trained not to cook, <laughs> <laughs> just to think. Yeah. So finally something that is what it looks like it is. Yes. <clears throat> That's it. Beautiful. So th that's gels and spherification, uh, one of the very beautiful phenomena that physics seeks to explain. And in this case, it explains it by talking about the cross-linking reaction of polymers. Shall we move on to freeze-dried? You're the boss. Let's, let's talk about freeze-dried. The, uh, one of the very unique uh, techniques that um, Albuli has developed and perfected is freeze drying. 
So what, what that does is, uh, is really remove water and concentrate flavors. But I'd like to hear Nazat tell me about freeze drying at Albuli. Uh, we have a machine, we were very lucky, where you could put any product, any stock, any fruit, any veggie, will extract the moist, that will freeze dry dust and keep the flavor very intense. So once I have a stock coming out from the freeze dry, I was able to mix it with a small little part of water and keep the excellent flavor without having to reduce. Well, the machine cost like 80,000 euros, <laughs> not even dollars. So that will be one of my dreams to have a machine like that one. I don't have room in my kitchen. You have room, I saw your kitchen. Um, so we're able to freeze dry every, everything. There is a brand, not because it's from Ferrana, yes, I use this every day, but you get from pina pi uh, pineapple to strawberry to anything you can freeze dry. And they have Intense some at Trader flavor. Joe's too, right? Yes, also. Can find it at yeah. Trader Joe's. Yes. It's a, it's a very, uh, right, delicious, and very um, healthful and uh, great way for camping trips or road trips or Well, let's pass whatever. this so everyone can have one That's small nice. piece, I Thank guess. Thank you. Can you. So pass that brings us to the, the topic everyone? of water, which is um, something that every chef kind of thinks about as well. When I was um, first working in France, you would, uh, a chef would tell you that, well, you, you reduce this sauce or, or you want to take the water out of it to intensify the flavors. And so you did that by boiling, of course, and you have to stir it periodically, depending on what it is, so that it doesn't burn on the bottom of the pan. But um, it's not only reducing water that, uh, that is key to flavor in modern cooking, but it's, it's controlling water. As we saw how we control the way the water doesn't drain out of these foams or the way the, uh, the liquids uh, don't return to their liquid state in the case of spherification or in the case of freeze drying. So you have a chance to, um, to see the, the effect of that. But um, ice, as we, as we learned earlier, is, uh, is one of the phases that water goes through. If it's very, very cold, it crystallizes, so you have to hit it with a, a chisel in order to break it. If you boil it, it turns into steam and, uh, and enters the atmosphere. Uh, if you add sodium protein, so, uh, soy lecithin to it, you can build it into a foam. Um, what else shall we freeze today? Oh, we want to talk about, what are these powders? That, how is that used? Yeah. Well, very simple. <laughs> I have ovulato here. You want to talk about ovulato? I think you should, because I don't even know what it is. <laughs> uh, he knows. I barely know. So I d it's Japanese used to I move around and just need That's to okay. check something. Yes. I didn't tell you about this. Mr. Oh, Bill. surprise. Wow. Beautiful. So, it's a you it's made by rice starch, you say that in English? Rice starch, that's yes. right. Mm -hmm. Or potato. In Japan it's used to rub medicine. So, basically it dissolves on the tongue. 
with moist. Kind of like multiple orgasm going around the room there. <laughs> so what we did as a bully was uno. Perfecto. That girl is from Boston. She speaks Spanish. There you go. Go Boston. So this paper transform into this. Very pretty. Which oh. Okay. Please. <laughs> oh, with a light on it is great. Yes. Everyone can see it? Hey, I see your head. <laughs> there we go. Yes. It's very difficult. So you imagine. Moist is the enemy of uh, ovulato. What we did is just uh, well, what I learned. I painted with uh, simple syrup and sugar liquid eh, stays on it. We cook it. Once we cook it, we create, like Ferran says, the thinnest uh, paper, actually. We're able to do anything we want. I can put this in, in the oven for 20 seconds, put it out, and make any shape a cornet, whatever I want. I can paint it. It's the finest paper. Uh, also, you're able to dehydrate it. So we talk about the dehydrator, and then mm -hmm. we're done with that. Mm -hmm. And this is just ovulato. I didn't have seal pad, honestly. So we just put it here. Seal pad is a silicone uh, sheet that we use in baking and, and uh, in cooking. It was. It's actually... Um, it is also a polymer, a silicone, that is, uh, was developed by NASA to cover the outside of the space station because it, it can, um, it can uh, withstand very high temperatures. Sometimes you say something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if I got There's if not I a lot of patient, cooking on the space station. I just put it out, turn it, and it will just come out like this one. This one is the perfect one, the best one. I will need... Beautiful. Yeah, please. Oh, let's, yes. let's put this uh, yeah. so we, they can photograph. Um, yeah. The enemy of a lot of this type of cooking is uh, moisture. As we say, like the moisture you will begin to rehydrate because uh, sugar is uh, hydrophilic, so it likes water, and it will absorb water from the atmosphere. So a lot of, and imagine in Spain <coughs> in the summertime, where uh, it can get quite humid. So all of your preparations, anything like this that has to stay dry, are put in these uh, little containers. And usually there's uh, then a layer of calcium chloride or some kind of desiccant on the bottom. I mean, um, it has. Yeah. So we, uh, it, but it's, um, it's a lot of work to get to that point. So in order to serve it um, during the meal, you have to have, make sure that it stays at least for a few hours, which is quite a challenge. So going back to freeze-dry, we have freeze-dry strawberry with a mix of caramel, fondant, isomalt, and glucose. We cook that, put it together. In this amazing machine, I must say, they don't pay me, but without the machine, I wouldn't do it. Oh, anything. yeah, I have to put that up front. This is really this is incredible. Thermomix. Um, I'm able to mix or demolish, as I say, my caramel in this such a powder where I, would ju I just put it on the 
Ovulato, as you see. Christmas is coming. <laughs> and uh, I will cook this in the oven. Mr. Yeah. I will cook this in the oven. And then also I will get something like this. So we're able to make with simple syrup or actually with caramel, which is also sugar, is very good friend with the ovulato and freeze-dried fruit. A lot of flavor, it's very intense. I can make any form, any cornet, any spheric. If I cook this, if I put this in the oven, put it back, it's soft, give a form, I can add any spheric into it. Very simple. So all of these, uh, all of these kind of properties. You see, this is moist. It's my enemy. Yeah, yeah. It's very frustrating when you make these things. Yeah, the thermal mix is uh, it's sort of like the mixer, but it also heats at a temperature and a timer. So for pastry chefs, you can make a creme anglaise. You just put the egg, sugar, and milk in there and uh, set it and walk away. Or if you're a, uh, a culinary chef, you can make a risotto in how many minutes? Sixteen. <laughs> it's a thermomix lady. Thermomix lady. <laughs> anyway. Put your orders in ready. now. <clears throat> okay, what are we talking about next, Nazat? Well, chef. How <laughs> about, uh, we talked about, oh, what about mannitol? Um, a sugar alcohol. Yeah, give me two minutes. Okay. Uh, so... As this. a pastry chef, again, we, uh, <clears throat> we work with sugar. We develop many different kinds of decorations from sugar. We can heat it to a very high temperature, and then it behaves like molten glass. So you may have seen like pulled sugar flowers or with a, with a little um, uh, sort of uh, air blowing, like glass blowing. We can shape that into different fruits, and that's one of the things that, uh, that pastry chefs do to uh, decorate their cakes. Um, but again, the, the uh, moisture is very difficult to, uh, to control, and as soon as it's made, it's starting to absorb moisture from the air. So they've developed um, a series of sugars which are called sugar alcohols, which uh, isomalt is one and mannitol is another one. They are um <coughs> they're food safe, and they don't absorb uh, liquid as fast. They still do somewhat. So um, isomalt is one that we use for decoration. But uh, mannitol is one that, uh, that Nazad is going to show us. It's a white powder, and it, gets to, it goes to an extremely high temperature, which we have over here. Maybe if you can, um, I'll try to get it. It's a very interesting process, what's going on here. Okay, so it's, when it's set, oh, that you can't get too close, right? All right. It it becomes that crystallized form just as caramel would, except it stays white. So we'll put that on the fire and it's already starting to uh, liquefy again. And what we can do is dip, um, dip our, some other ingredients into it and it will be coated with a very paper thin shell of sugar. <coughs> so that makes kind of for some interesting taste uh, experiences. It's uh, when we do, when we use just sugar, we use granulated sugar, not powdered sugar. Powdered sugar has cornstarch added to keep it dry. So that would disturb the, uh, the boiling. It would, in fact, it would make the sugar crystallize automatically. Um, what we do for using sugar, we boil it to um, about 360 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Then we add uh, glucose. The recipe, if you want to make it at home, is a kilo of sugar to 300 grams of glucose. Um, at that point, it's fully liquid. We pour it on a marble uh, so that it doesn't stick, maybe a little bit of oil on the marble to prevent it from sticking. And then you begin to work it into a mass. And from there, you can uh, fold it. The more you fold it, the more sheen it takes on. And, um, and then you uh, shape it into flowers or pears or apples or whatever decoration you're looking for. But it's quite hot. It's like working with molten glass. So we use special gloves, but still kind of the heat goes through the glove. But it's a, it's a very unique system, and it's one that's been made um, more refined by this development of mannitol because we can get a much thinner shell. No matter how hot you make the sugar, you may have seen uh, sugar-dipped fruits. No matter how hot you make it, uh, it still tends to make a pretty thick crust. Um, for example, glazed apples. That's an, an example of when you, you dip the apple into the, the glaze. It still forms a pretty thick shell on the outside. Um, so what we're trying to do in this case is to get a very, very thin shell. <clears throat> So the experience is, is that much more refined. So we're going to do that, uh, the mannitol, and then we're going, to make a, um, we're going to make a liquid nitrogen sorbet. And after that, we're going to open it to questions. So mannitol comes in powder. It's very dangerous. He's, he gets to 300 degrees. Centigrade. 300 centigrade, right? Yes. Which is... Um, well, we must have some scientists in here. Times uh, 9 over 5 times 32. Or <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> 572. That's pretty hot for a liquid. Your oven yes. gets to 572, but it's rare that, that you get any uh, liquid that hot, <coughs> unless it's oil. So it's kind of like a sugar that behaves as an oil. <coughs> but it's very dangerous. It does not caramelize, yes. Eh? That's, that's you put your finger, you lose half of your finger. Yeah. Yeah, that was interesting what he said. It doesn't caramelize, so we don't get color from it. It stays, no. uh, it stays clear. So I'm waiting that it melts completely. Can I have the rose also? It tastes, yeah, it tastes sweet like sugar. It's not exactly the same as, uh, as beet sugar or cane sugar, um, but it, it doesn't, it's very close to sugar. It's, uh, it's used in, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, gum, artificial, artificial sugar gums. Use some of those uh, sugar alcohols. So, so it's, not, um, it's not the exact taste of sugar, but it's pretty close. Can you move this a little bit here? Oh, say that again, please. Gluten, yeah, right. Okay. Um, well, this is something that has taken mm -hmm. incredible importance lately because of the, um, the increase in celiac disease and just in general the research on gluten. Uh, you can use a flour or grain that does not have gluten, such as rice flour. Um, it does not develop in the same way as wheat flour, so you'll have a, a very different texture. For example, but crepes are an example. You can make a crepe out of rice flour, um, which is very pleasant. It's kind of crispy as opposed to that soft wheat flour, uh, but it's gluten-free. Um, 
And there's a, number of, uh, there's a number of other grains which have been made into flours which can be used in um, baking and uh, have no gluten at all. There's a, there's a new gluten-free cookbook or baking book out uh, that I have not had a chance to, to check out or, uh, and, and really try any of the recipes, but um, I'm looking forward to so Najat is uh, dipping. What are you dipping into there, my dear? Well, as you see, it's very dangerous. You can't just, it's just a normal praline with nuts and freeze dry uh, fruit, white chocolate praline. But I, it's frozen, okay? It's very hot, it's frozen. I dip it in, very dangerous. And now I create a layer once I leave it for maybe half an hour, it will be liquid inside and the whole sugar will keep it together. Very simple. I have a form of a rose. I do the same. I normally do this with a needle, but I couldn't find one. So praline in Europe refers to an almond or hazelnut paste mixed with sugar. Um, it's an incredibly aromatic and delicious uh, so substance. This one, I turn it, you will see in a minute. It will start melting. You see the sugar, the crunchiness, this layer, so thin. Paper thin. Yeah. So you have that crunchiness and sweetness on the outside, but um, Perfect. that's amazing. Fold the ice. Can we buy mannitol at Trader Joe's? No. No. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. But we had trouble finding it ourselves. I also, it's very dangerous. It's not for anyone. You should yeah. yes. Yeah, some of these things you don't want to really... Um, Here we just have uh, pure juice in forms with uh, cubes of ice, which you can also... Nobody eats ice. But actually, it's refreshing. If you have 60 course meal... It's served as an intermezzo or kind of uh, palate cleanser. Yes, at all the flavors go out. Come out. We, we make it in small cubes. So you can just have it once. It's very pleasant. After your twelfth or fourteenth course, you're glad yes. to have something as simple as water. This is too exaggerate, but beautiful. Very simple. Yeah. Fantastic. Manitol, very dangerous. Manitol. Melting um, here. Very dangerous, but very delicious. <coughs> so, um, shall we make our sorbet, our final recipe? I thought you were with the phone, madre mia. No, no, this is the contraption they use to change. So there's uh, Nazat and myself at work, <laughs> working hard. Oh. <laughs> Your tax dollars at work. That was like... <laughs> <laughs> that was... Thank you. We had a... That was... She came to visit me and... Um, so that's where we kind of cooked up our little uh, plan to uh, I spent like to two talk years to all of you. In the mountains <laughs> up at the bully, and I didn't go almost anywhere. And then I flew to San Francisco and drove all the way from San Francisco to New York. I wanted to know your country. So <laughs> now she I does. went to visit Thomas Keller, which was my, one of my teachers, and also Grand Akats to Chicago. And then I went to visit it. Uh, so those names you probably recognize are uh, really the top chefs in America and uh, Nazat has spent uh, the last few years working in the very best restaurants in the world 
uh, French Laundry, Alinea in Chicago with Grand Ashats. Uh, you were at Noma, Rene Redzepi, uh, which was voted the best restaurant in the world last year, uh, which uses a kind of a very modern approach to sustainable cooking and local sourcing. Every day, well, you could tell me better than, than I can tell them. Isn't it true that they go out to source the food every day from the area? Who? At uh, Noma. Yes. <coughs> mm -hmm. He will go like crazy to any corner, any farm, anywhere, any mm -hmm. island, wherever. He has a very nice uh, concept. Yeah. Yes. From the area. The network of people from the area. And so whether it's foraging for fiddlehead ferns and berries in the forest or to a farmer, a cheesemaker, yes. or a fisherman, um, but all of it's theoretically within 100 miles of the restaurant. From, yeah, from each chef I learned something. And from him, it was to be, to rely on those people who are working the land and those animals that at the end of the day we eat. So if you don't get support from those farmers, they don't go, they don't bring you the best product. So it has to be an exchange, eh? farming yep. and restaurants, it's very important. And at Noma, that's what I learned, to, to survive with what you have around and to be creative. Because we sometimes go crazy. If I want texturas, I have to order them there. If I want monitor, I have to. But sometimes also we have to go to the luxury of simplicity. Can I say that? Yes? The luxury yes. of simplicity. Muy importante. And it's, uh, I'm proud to be part of the uh, team at the White House, which is really uh, doing the same thing and looking for the same kind of uh, results. I saw your garden. We have a garden. Um, and we don't, we don't use, uh, I mean, we don't only source from the garden, but uh, it's a start. And um, Mrs. Obama has launched the Let's Move campaign to encourage uh, healthier eating, local sourcing, and um, exercise as well, of course. But I, I'm sure that there's probably no one else in the world that has done the restaurants that, that Nazat just uh, mentioned. Uh, it's a very grueling pace and a very demanding uh, environment. And uh, I'm a great admirer. You have to become a little lion to survive. Yeah. If you're a female. If you're a female. There aren't many females in, in those three-star kitchens. But this one survived and thrived and now is doing demonstrations around the world um, involving the Elbuli techniques. She was just in Australia and uh, now in Cambridge. Yes. So let's have some fun. Don't touch these that. Are, these are sorbets. Uh, so it's already slightly frozen, but uh, do we have a whisk or yes. a spoon? There's a whisk. <coughs> whisk yeah. or spoon or... Please. This is, so it's uh, kind of an instant sorbet. Yes. You want to do it? Okay, you want a whisk? <laughs> He's the genius. Here we go. You tell me when to stop. No, just go crazy. Go crazy. Good. Right. You want glasses? You want safety glasses? No. I like that sound. Let's keep him, keep him relaxed. Let's go here. Very good. And what flavors are we making here? This is uh, from Wessa. This is grape. Concord black, grape? Black, black juice. Black grape. Yes. Beautiful. Can you stop one second? 
stone. It's very, you know, a lot of people, they try to make granite. It's not like a granite, but you're able to create dust very fast with nitrogen, anything. In a minute, well, a minute, no, I lie. Maybe 10 minutes, it will be soft. And you, it's just like a sorbet texture. It's like, like red bead, I don't know. Could be freeze dry if you look at it good. Yep. Okay. So we, we haven't talked like about this. the Paco jet, did we? Oh, oh yeah, we yes. did we talk? It's here. Yeah, our, uh, the other machine that we're um, showing as part of what modern cooking uses is the Paco jet, that tall machine on the end, which is a, um, it's used for making ice creams essentially, but you freeze the batter in the, in the beaker and then you put it, uh, it attaches to the bottom of this um, blade and the blade runs at a very high speed So um, the beaker goes in here, and under here is the, um, well, I won't take it out. The, there's a blade here, believe me. And it, it runs at a very high speed and, and digs down into that and makes a very smooth ice cream. So you can have a smooth, fresh-turned ice cream um, at will. And um, we also use it, you, if you run it just a short time, you create uh, sort of what, uh, what Nadja just created, which is a kind of a powder. It has to be served immediately on a cold plate, of course, but it's a very pleasant sort of uh, powdery, frozen uh, flavor, which melts immediately in your mouth. Being a powder, having that very uh, small surface area, it immediately disperses as soon as you get to it. Beautiful. So the Concord grape or raspberry sorbet. I have on my list mojito written down here. Is that what we're going to have after this, or is there a mojito? <laughs> okay, we're going to have that after this. Thank you, Najat. It's been a pleasure to work with you today, and thank you all for coming. Oh, Very yeah. nice. Yes. Um, let's take some questions. I'd just like to remind you that after Q&A, there is a book signing by Bill outside. But first, Q&A. Any questions? Yes, over there. Um, I was wondering if you had any, uh, if you had any preferences in making uh, foams with uh, gelatin versus uh, soy lecithin, and uh, what the differences that you'd get from those foams? Well, gelatins, I'll start, and you, if you have your own opinion. Um, gelatins are, uh, certainly that's what we used uh, for many, many years um, in pastry, and still do. I used it in the um, chocolate mousse there. But um, I have kind of an aversion to gelatin to begin with. It's, you know, it's made from like hooved animals. It's made from horse hooves and calf hooves, and if you really, if you, wet some gelatin and smell it, it really doesn't smell nice. Now that gets, dis that gets dispersed into your recipe, so you don't notice it too much, but why add something which smells so bad to begin with? Um, also, a lot more people are vegetarians and vegans, so if you have to make something separate 
for that person because you're using an animal product. I prefer to use one of the more modern gelatins, which um, then everybody can eat. But I really don't want to downgrade it too much. I still use it, and um, it's useful for, um, for many things. Nothing wrong with gelatin, really. Um, I'm curious about, uh, with the Bombay gin that, that prompted this question, um, <laughs> the olive juice caviar that we sampled, um, if one of those were placed in alcohol, such as a Bombay gin sapphire martini, um, w would it hold up or would it dissolve? Yes. It, would, it would be fine in, yeah. the, in the martini? So those would be some, some good olives uh, to put in your... Thank you. Sometimes I make a gin and tonic spirits, and you're able to. I keep it in gin or vodka. Doesn't matter. You can keep it. It There's doesn't react to alcohol. No. no. Um, hello. Uh, this question is for Chef Naja. Um, the question is: uh, It seems as if you've you've worked under some of the best uh, culinary minds and skills of our time, and I was wondering if you could uh, take a moment um, to talk about each one of them, uh, each one of the experiences that you've had, and about the differences that you found among them, and what you learned uh, from each of those experiences. Okay, that's a very good question. Eh? Everybody asking the same. Um, to be honest, I was an actress and I changed my career when I was in Holland. I moved to Holland. I met an uh, executive chef from Heston Blumenthal who was opening a restaurant and they had all boys. They didn't want to have any woman in the kitchen. So I went with my bicycle every Friday and asked him that I wanted to work with him because he used to use nitrogen. As you saw, I'm crazy with nitrogen, okay? <laughs> so I started working there. I, it was a great experience to touch molecular cuisine with one of the best. I didn't realize at that time. Then I found out about Granakets, and I sent him a letter, and he sent me back an email. You're going to be picking flowers. I said, no problem. I will be picking flowers. So I took my fly, went to Chicago, trained with him. When I saw him the first five minutes in the kitchen, I realized that I wasn't crazy. He was so passionate doing a dish that I thought, oh, that's me. So I was with him. From there, I went to Noma to see Rene. With Rene, I learned to be patient and to use the land. Even if I was born in San Sebastian, sometimes you don't realize that just using the products around, as I told before, it's very important for a chef to be creative. With Thomas Keller, I learned to be precise and to have the sense of urgency with anything you, you do. And with Ferran, I was able to free myself just to be creative. With him, I learned to just be crazy. Just bring back that little key that we all have inside and we hide because we are in society to bring it out with food. So this was very simple. I have no more chefs than <laughs> <laughs> Something else? There's a question over there. Hi, from, a, uh, from a practical perspective with the liquid nitrogen, um, given that like, you know, restaurants are you know, driven by cost uh, to stay alive, is, is that, does that pay off? Is that something that's like typical or? 
It's not terribly expensive, if that's what you mean. Um, you do have to have a license to have it, so you have to go through a process of safety uh, course, and um, you need to, um, to be sure that uh, your insurance is paid up, I suppose, because there are some <laughs> There are some risks to it. Um, the primary risk of uh, it's it's 300 degrees below zero, um, but you can, as you saw, I mean, if you get some on your finger, it's okay. It's so long as it's not immersed for a long period. Um, the problem is uh, if you're use if you're using it in an enclosed space, if there's not good ventilation, as all that smoke disperses, it can displace the oxygen in the air, and you can suffocate. So. Um, <clears throat> You have to be, you know, use uh, care when uh, when using it. But the the uh, product itself is not very expensive. In the back. Why does why does mannitol not caramelize? That's a question for the physics department. Why does mannitol not caramelize? Uh, well, what do you mean not caramelize? Not not color. Oh. Yeah. We, we sometimes use the word caramelized to indicate that it is melted, which is... No. Torch it? I don't know. We could try. And if, no, 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 no. <laughs> we don't. So, you can try some now, other that, time. Her insurance is not paid up. <laughs> no, I don't know. I, that's, I had, that's, that I, could be a homework assignment. I was at El Bulli and I also asked the same to one of, uh, I think, an amazing chef who trained me very good, Mateo Casañas, and he, I used to throw color into it and it was like <laughs> So it just burns, basically anything I will add to it, it will just burn. That's so I'm not a scientific, can I so, say that? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So is it not a carbohydrate? Because if it was a carbohydrate, wouldn't it color? So it's a sugar, but not a carbohydrate. It's actually referred to as a sugar alcohol. So what that chemical formula is, I have to leave that to the scientists to explain. That's, you know what the teacher says is that's the homework when he doesn't know the answer. So. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. One more question. Can you just give us details about um, how to sign up for the next oh. thing? Can you speak up? We can't hear you. Speak into the microphone. Can you give us details about how to sign up for the, the last um, class? For Ferran's lecture? Yeah. So for Ferran's lecture, um, you need to get a ticket from the Harvard box office, and those are available at noon tomorrow. They're not, it's not online, as far as I know. Um, but the tickets are free, and then you show up as usual. I do not know. It's in the Holyoke Center. Do you know where that is? It's next to the Aubon Pan. Uh, if you just walk through Harvard Yard, and you walk inside through that glass doorway, it's to the right. OK. OK, so there is a maximum of two tickets per person. All right. Yes, okay, last question. What are the Obama's favorite dessert? What are the Obama's favorite desserts? Um, uh, they do like dessert and, um, you know, have, have said, um, you know, that's a, pleasure is always a part of cooking and eating and, and certainly that's not going to go away. Um, they do practice in moderation, but they love good old American pies. 
fruit pies, cherry pie, uh, the president loves banana cream pie, Mrs. Obama loves pecan pie, the girls like any pie. <laughs> Uh, the question was, do we use these techniques at the White House? Um, occasionally. Um, it, it, the White House events are very uh, different in nature, uh, depending on who the guest is. So we, we you know, really craft the menu to the guest. So this would not be appropriate for 90% of the guests who come to the White House. Um, they're looking for more of a traditional uh, menu. But we have had many groups that we have used um, uh, modern uh, modern cuisine techniques. Uh, the uh, who was it? The uh, sometimes we have museums, and uh, the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum had just done a uh, exhibit called the Design of Flavor. So we use these techniques for that, but it's unusual. Okay, so let's thank Bill and Nacha and the team one more time. <laughs>